everyone. I'm Grace Beatty, and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. Step back in time with me as we learn about some of the most infamous and maligned women in history. Speaking with leading experts, I will discuss these women's backstories and the circumstances that gave them the title of Wicked. In this season of Wicked Women, I will be focusing on some well-known and some lesser-known women in history who have acquired an unsavory reputation. In the end, this podcast does not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but it is also not looking to completely villainize them. Instead, I hope this can be a conversation starter on the complicated legacies prescribed to women in history. In today's episode, I will be analyzing the life and legacy of Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford, the sister-in-law to Anne Boleyn, and executed alongside Catherine Howard. Discussing Jane's life and legacy with me today will be Claire Ridgway, a historian, best-selling author, and founder of the website The Anne Boleyn Files, and Adam Pennington, the creator of the widely popular blog and Instagram page The Tudor Chest. Continue listening to learn more about this mysterious and interesting woman from history. She was witness to some of the most monumental events of Henry VIII's reign. She was a lady-in-waiting to five of his six queens, the sister-in-law to one and a cousin-in-law to another. She callously brought down the downfall of her husband and sister-in-law, and led a young girl farther into sin and ultimately to the block. Or so the legend goes. When Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford, laid her head upon the block on that cold February morning, the real woman died, and a myth of the infamous Lady Rochford was born. Through media portrayals and historical analysis, Jane Boleyn's legacy has become one of scorned wife, jealous sister-in-law, and scheming lady-in-waiting. Her story is defined by betrayal, revenge, schemes, manipulation, and death. As 18th century historian Charles Coote put it, the infamous Lady Rochford justly deserved her fate for the concern which she had in bringing Anne Boleyn, as well as her own husband, to the block. However, as we will discuss later in this episode, that assertion is more myth than fact. Jane Parker was born somewhere around 1505 into a well-connected, wealthy, upper-class family. Her father, Henry Parker, Lord Morley, was deeply invested in the arts and instilled that love in his children. Through her mother, Alice St. John, Jane was a distant relative of Henry VIII. Much of Jane's early life remains undocumented, but by her early teens, she arrived at the court of Henry VIII to be a maid of honor to his Spanish bride, Catherine of Aragon. What is often overshadowed by the execution of her sister-in-law and her own bloody downfall is the fact that Jane stands in the periphery of many of the major events of Henry VIII's reign. As Adam Pennington points out, She was the witness of all of the juiciest parts of Henry VIII's reign. So she was a lady-in-waiting to five of his queens, starting with Catherine of Aragon and obviously ending with Catherine Howard. So for the most part, she saw it all. You know, she was recorded as being at the Field of the Cloth of Gold. 
She saw the fall of Catherine of Aragon's marriage. She saw the rise and obviously meteoric fall of Anne Boleyn, the death of Jane Seymour, the failed marriage of Anne of Cleves. Um, So I think what is so fascinating about her is that a woman who was directly privy to all of the juiciest parts of the story is actually very often overlooked. And when she isn't overlooked, she's a one-note character who's just very, very maligned, basically. By 1524, Jane's father was in talks that would determine the direction and security of the rest of Jane's life. Lord Morley began speaking to the Boleyn family about a match between their son George and his daughter. By this point, the Boleyns were already on the ascent. Thomas Boleyn's daughter Mary had been mistress to Henry VIII, and while the exact date and duration of the fair are unknown, we can be sure that the affair had begun by the time Lord Morley began speaking about a potential match with the Boleyns. Thomas's other daughter, Anne, had returned to England from the French court in 1522, making her debut alongside Jane that same year. Jane's intended bridegroom, George Boleyn, was a seemingly perfect match. His family was rising at court, and George himself worked in the king's privy chamber, an affluent and enviable position. There is no record of when Jane Parker married George Boleyn, but by 1525, she was recorded as Jane Boleyn, switching her affiliation to the family that would be her making and her destruction. While popular legend has claimed that Jane and George had an unhappy marriage, Claire Ridgway asserts... The um, the idea of, you know, that George and Jane had an unhappy marriage. And, you know, where on earth does that come from? There's no evidence for that either. Just because we don't have any records of Jane being pregnant or having a child uh, doesn't mean that they were unhappy. And and so you just, the myth just builds up on myth and it's, yeah, so frustrating. And Adam argues... One of the things that does continually come up, um, that people, people who want to maintain that she was this evil, you know, shrew who, who hated her marriage. Something that they often cling to is the fact that during the marriage that Jane never fell pregnant. Um, now, it's possible that she had miscarriages which weren't reported on. Um, and this lack of, of children has aided the, the sort of the belief that maybe the unhappy marriage was an unhappy one. Um, there's even been suggestions that maybe George was homosexual it is certainly unusual that there weren't children, because as we know, marriages of the nobility were all about shoring up the dynasty. But equally, maybe they just couldn't have children. Um, you know, and maybe George was infertile, maybe Jane was infertile. We just can't say. And the irony is that the, those that, you know, that say that the marriage was unhappy often talk about George as this big Lothario, but they often they equally overlooked the fact that there was never any any mention to my knowledge and belief that George had illegitimate children. Um, You know, there weren't even rumours. So, you know, again, that's just something that I think we need to look at quite closely. As historian Julia Fox points out in her groundbreaking book, Jane Boleyn, The True Story of the Infamous Lady Rochford, Jane probably initially assumed that her new position would emulate that of her mother's elegant court lady who split her time between court and her own estates. What she never could have envisioned is that she would become entangled 
in the most scandalous love affair of her era. It is unknown when Jane's sister-in-law, Anne Boleyn, became the object of the king's affection and obsession. But by 1526, Henry began writing Anne amorous letters and could barely stand to be apart from his dearest. What followed was an almost seven-year battle for Henry to obtain an annulment from his first wife and make Anne his queen. There is no record of Jane's thoughts about this unbelievable turn of events, but she was most certainly aware of and enjoying the bounty from the Boleyn's rise. Henry showered gifts, titles, and estates on the Boleyn family. In 1529, George was granted the title Viscount Rochford, making Jane a Viscountess. In the fall of 1532, after years of struggling against the Catholic Church and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, Henry took matters into his own hands to make Anne his wife. In April of 1532, at the Convocation of Canterbury, England's clergy were forced to accept Henry VIII's supremacy over the Pope on church matters. Secure in his own self-worth and power, Henry sailed for Calais, France, with the Boleyn family to meet with the King of France. Anne spends her time in France living as a queen in all but name. As a high-ranking lady of the court, and Anne's sister-in-law, Jane would have been at the very center of the events, helping Anne to dress, performing alongside her in masks, and sitting at the high table at meals. Historians believe it was during this trip that Anne finally gave in to Henry and consummated their relationship. By February 1533, Anne began hinting at the fact that she was pregnant. In May of that year, Henry's first marriage was officially annulled by the English clergy, and preparation for Anne's coronation began. On June 1, 1533, Jane must have watched in astonishment as the event the Boleyns had been working towards for years finally came to pass. Anne sat on St. Edward's chair, a rite usually only reserved for kings, not consorts, and had St. Edward's crown placed upon her head. She was now Queen of England, and her family the most powerful in the country. Even more promising, it was plain for all to see that Anne was pregnant. If she was carrying a son, the Boleyn's position would be secured for generations to come. Alas, the child was not a son, but a daughter. Henry assured Anne that they were still young and could try again, but this fact must have struck fear into Jane and the entire Boleyn family, who knew that their position relied on Anne having a son and heir. After a second pregnancy that ended in a miscarriage, Henry's eyes began to wander. Film and television often portray Anne and Jane as having a strained and sometimes outright volatile relationship. The historical records do not go along with that narrative. Here's Adam. If you look at Anne, for example, we're regularly told that the two women hated each other that they, they fought, that they came to blows. I mean, it's shown in Wolf Hall and slapping Jane Boleyn. But there's literally no evidence for this. In fact, what the records tell us paints a really different picture. So if, you know, for example, in 1534, by this point, Anne is queen and Jane was called on Anne to help her uncover an affair that Anne suspected Henry VIII was having. Jane agreed uh, and the two and possibly other ladies in waiting they went sort of full-on Miss Marple and staged a sort of undercover investigation. Now, you know, not only does that show Anne Boleyn trusting Jane, but it shows a certain 
Um, I think it shows that Jane was willing to play her part as a Boleyn and do what she could to protect the family name. Now, I hasten to add it did her no favours at court because um, Henry VIII found out, was furious and actually banished Jane from court for a time. But, you know, as I said, it just, to me, speaks volumes about her relationship with Anne. And we still see it today. Um, You know, you only... And for whatever reason, you know, we do tend to like pitting women, particularly royal women, against each other. And that's... We still see that now. You you know, if you look at the... The 1980s, you had the Princess of Wales, Diana, versus the Duchess of York, Sarah. And then much more recently, we've had Kate versus Meghan. You know, it's, it still goes on today. It's the easy route to take, that of the scorned and angry wife versus um, the sort of the the queen who, who went down but shouldn't have. So it's... But it's, it's not impossible to, to rewrite history. The year 1536 had begun positively. Anne was once again pregnant and back in the king's affection. Catherine of Aragon died on January 7, 1536, and on the day of her internment, Anne miscarried her salvation. Jane would have known that the only way to save the Boleyns was for Anne to become pregnant again, but Anne confided in Jane that at times, Henry found it difficult to perform in the bedroom, making another pregnancy far from assured. Jane quickly passed on this information to her husband, never realizing that this piece of information would help bring about her husband's demise. It is unknown whether Jane ever looked back on her life before her death, but if she had, she could have pinpointed the exact day that her charmed life fell apart. On the 2nd of May, 1536, Anne and George were arrested and taken separately to the Tower of London. This event began the vilification of Jane for centuries to come. Henry's chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, led the investigation into Anne's supposed unchaste life. The records show that one of the women questioned was Jane. Jane's existence depended on this interrogation. If Cromwell and Henry did not find her answers satisfactory, she could be sent to the tower, and Henry had proven in the past that he did not hesitate sending a woman to her death. What Jane said in the interrogation, and her motivations for saying them, have become myth. Many historians and audiences believe that she held a deep resentment towards the close relationship between her husband and sister-in-law. With this jealousy at a boiling point, she maliciously provided Cromwell with evidence that pointed towards an incestuous relationship between the siblings. In truth, Jane's role in George and Anne's downfall is much murkier, and many of the accusations leveled at her have come from a misreading of the primary sources, as Claire states. So Alison Weir, for example, and and she is just one example in her book, The Lady in the Tower, um, which, you know, a lot of people read a a fantastic book that focuses on um, Anne's fall. I mean, she cites Edward um, Lord Herbert of Cherbury, who was a 17th century biographer, so not that far removed, as describing Jane as a particular instrument in the ruin of her husband and sister. And she says that he bases this idea of Jane, this awful idea of Jane, on contemporary evidence, such as Anthony Anthony's Lost Journal, um, the works, the writings, letters of Eustace Chapri, the imperial ambassador, and anonymous Portuguese accounts. 
the poem by Lancelot de Carle, who was secretary to the French ambassador in 1536. He was on the ground in London and Jane's execution confession. So you would think that that was pretty solid kind of, you know, evidence to back up this idea of Jane as the baddie. But you then read the work of Julia Fox, and I really have got to say that if you're interested in Jane, you've really got to read Julia Fox's book and Charlie Fenton's book as well. Um, Julia and John Guy have pointed out that Lord Herbert Cherbury actually wasn't quoting from Anthony Anthony's Lost Chronicle. He was actually quoting his own work, as you do, quoting your own work. That Eustace Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, never names Jane as a witness against George and Anne. That the Portuguese source doesn't name her either. It just talks about that person. So it's a bit of a leap to go from that person to Jane Boleyn. Lancelot de Carle, if you read his whole poem, is talking about Elizabeth Lady Worcester, not Jane Boleyn. And then there's no confession, there's no execution confession that is a work of fiction. We actually have an eyewitness account written by a London merchant, Otwell Johnson, who was present at Jane's execution and the execution of Catherine Howard. And, you know, Jane died with dignity, with courage, and she did not confess to being involved in the falls of Anne and George at all. And then, of course, some people use the idea of George's words at his trial, saying that, you know, he, he blamed Jane. But he said, on the evidence of only one woman, you are willing to believe this great evil of me. And on the basis of her allegations, you are deciding my judgment. But if he was meaning Jane there, surely he would have said, on the evidence of my wife, you know, my jealous wife or something. It sounds really like he's um, talking about the Countess of Worcester, who is mentioned, you know, in the primary sources, um, or Lady Wingfield. Their names come up, you know, in the sources for the trials. And also Jane sends George a letter of comfort while he's in the tower, and he sends thanks back to her. You think if he had any idea that she was involved or that they had a bad relationship, that, you know, he might not bother sending thanks and she might not bother sending a letter, you know, of comfort to him. So these myths have, have grown around evidence that just isn't there. <laughs> Uncharacteristically of a scheming, vindictive wife, Jane was the only person to write letters of comfort to her husband in the tower. She was forbidden from writing him directly, so she wrote to the constable of the tower, William Kingston, with the hope that he would pass them on to George. Thomas Boleyn quietly retreated from the court, leaving little support to his children. With the Boleyn men cowering from Henry's wrath, Jane could do little more than watch in horror as the case against George and Anne was created. During her interrogation by Cromwell, Jane revealed the unsavory comment made by Anne about Henry's occasional impotence. During George's trial, he was asked to read a question silently and simply answer yes or no. George instead read the question out loud, which asked if his wife had told him if the king had difficulty performing his husbandly duties. This foolhardy show of defiance sealed George's fate. Henry did not take public humiliation lightly. As historian Julia Fox wrote, Jane had not rushed to tell tales, 
but she had buckled under the pressure of relentless questioning. Confronting the first major test of her courage, she had given way. She had repeated to Cromwell Anne's indiscretions about Henry's sexual inadequacies. It was her weakness under interrogation that gave her future detractors happy to find a scapegoat to exonerate the king from the heinous charge of callously killing his innocent wife, the ammunition to maintain that it was her evidence that had fooled Henry and destroyed Anne and George. On May 17, 1536, George was beheaded on the Tower Hill, with Anne following him to a more private scaffold a day later. Many portrayals of Jane would have us believe this fact would have left her overflowing with joy, but as Adam points out, Jane had much more to lose from the fall of the Boleyns than to gain. Tudor England was a deeply, deeply patriarchal society. Jane was not Jane Parker, she was Jane Boleyn. She was a Boleyn. Her entire existence and position came from her marriage, ultimately. And I struggle to see why she would have plotted against a man for whom her whole being and purpose at court rested on. Surely she would have been a supporter of the villain faction because she was one herself. Simply put, if they fell, she fell with them. Um, you know, there is just no evidence, really. You know, and, and there isn't any evidence that she conspired against George. What the, what the evidence that we have is that actually she sent him letters during his time in the Tower to say that she was doing what she could to try and clear his name. That's something that's just not talked about very often. For the Boleyn family, the downfall of Anne Boleyn was a permanent exile from court life, but not for Jane. There is no record of when Jane rejoined court, but she was eventually installed as a lady-in-waiting to Henry's new queen, Jane Seymour. Her time in Jane Seymour's household seems to have been largely uneventful, but she was almost certainly present for Jane Seymour's most triumphant moment, the birth of her son. It was perhaps a bittersweet moment for Jane, knowing that her sister-in-law's replacement had been blessed with the son that would have secured Anne Boleyn a position for life. Jane would have also been nearby, if not attending the Queen directly, when Jane Seymour died 12 days after giving birth to the son that had eluded both Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. After somehow climbing her way back into court life, Jane was once again out of a position at court. With no queen, there was no role for her there. Now with a son and heir, there was no guarantee that Henry would marry again. However, luckily or unluckily for Jane, Henry was eventually convinced to take another wife. After much negotiation and some stinging rejections from foreign princesses, Henry was set to marry the Duke of Cleves' sister, Anna. Jane was recalled to court to take up the position of lady-in-waiting. And once again, Jane was witness to a vital event in Henry's reign and love life, were they really ever that separate. It is believed that Jane was present for the unfortunate first meeting of Henry and his fourth bride, Anna of Cleves. Henry loved dressing up in disguise when he was young, and believed doing so again to meet his new wife would create a fantasy love story like King Arthur's. Unfortunately, Anne had not been told of this game and drew back horrified when an old, overweight man barged into her room and went to kiss her. It soon became clear that this hit to his ego was too much for Henry, for rumors began to swirl that after months of marriage, 
Anna was still a virgin. It also became clear that Henry's affection had moved on to a new woman, a young, petite, pretty maid of honor named Catherine Howard. Remember her? When Jane became aware of Henry's new paramour, she never could have imagined that this tiny, unassuming girl would be her own demise. Jane's own actions have not helped to dispel the creation of her negative legacy. While she did not have a direct hand in George and Anne's downfall, she did play a part in the end of Anna of Cleves' marriage. Jane, along with two other ladies of Anna's household, testified to the council set up to annul the king's marriage that Anna had said when the king came to her at night and left in the morning, all he did was kiss her gently, leaving the women to assume that Anna was still a virgin. This was just the story that Henry needed to divorce his fourth wife and make Catherine Howard his queen. Six months after her marriage to Henry, Anna's marriage was annulled and she was granted the new title of the king's sister. Jane had now served four of Henry's eventual six queens, and she was about to start serving the fifth when Catherine Howard married Henry on July 28, 1540. It appears that Jane and Catherine became close, with the young queen often preferring Jane's company over her other ladies. In the beginning, Catherine seemed to be riding on a high, beloved by the king, politically unmotivated, therefore making few enemies on her own, and a combination of Jane Seymour's sweetness and Anne Boleyn's spark. In July of 1541, Jane joined the royal couple on a summer progress through the countryside and began the chapter of her life that has baffled historians and the public for centuries. On the 1st of November, 1541, Henry VIII found a letter in his privy chapel at Hampton Court. The letter claimed that his young wife had had sexual encounters with two men before their marriage. Jane may have known some of these stories from Catherine, or she may have been as surprised as Henry. What quickly became clear was that Catherine's position as queen was in grave danger. Catherine was confined to her rooms with her ladies and questioned by Archbishop Cranmer, the man who had made the marriage of Henry and Jane's sister-in-law, Anne Boleyn, possible. Catherine began by denying everything, but as the evidence began to increase, Catherine would eventually confess. One of the men involved with Catherine prior to her marriage, Francis Derham, admitted under torture to a sexual relationship with the young queen, but he emphasized that this was all before her marriage to King Henry. However, discretion had never been Derham's strong suit, so in an attempt to further exonerate himself, he claimed that he had been supplanted in the queen's affection by another man, Thomas Culpepper. More damning, Derham claimed that this relationship was started during Catherine's marriage to Henry. This accusation would ultimately lead to Catherine's death, but it would also pull Jane into the fray. Jane was named as the lady-in-waiting who assisted Catherine in her secret midnight meetings with Culpepper. Many have since laid the blame for this affair at Jane's feet. Depictions often show Jane encouraging or manipulating Catherine into beginning a relationship with Culpepper. This portrayal of Jane is often left without a reason for her actions. There was nothing for Jane to gain politically, physically, or emotionally from an affair between Catherine and Culpepper. Her own sister-in-law had gone to the block for accusations of adultery, so Jane would have been well aware of the awful risks. 
Claire discusses some of the possible reasons for Jane's assistance in Catherine and Culpepper's relationship. I mean, we don't know what was going through her head at the time. We don't know what advice she gave to Queen Catherine, whether it was, you know, don't meet him. Um, but she shouldn't have gone along with it. But I actually asked Julia Fox about this. I mean, I've, I had the honour of um, meeting Julia and her husband, John Guy. And I asked Julia Fox about this because it intrigued me so much. Why on earth did Jane get involved um, in all this? And she came up with the idea that um, Jane helped them once, helped Catherine meet Thomas Culpepper once. And so that was committing misprision of treason. So really, why not do it again? She'd already committed a crime. So there was no point really in not helping them further. And at the end of the day, Queen Catherine was her mistress. She was the queen. She was to do, as her servant, as her lady, she was to do the queen's bidding. And then Julia also said that Jane previously had turned to Thomas Cromwell for help. Like when George died and she was left with sort of money worries, she went to Cromwell for help. Well, Cromwell at this point was dead and gone, so she had no one to turn to either. So, yeah, I just find that that is what really interests me in her story, the the myths that surround her and, and then why on earth she got, you know, involved in Queen Catherine's downfall. Adam discusses the complications around truly understanding Jane's actions with Catherine. It is more difficult to say with, um, with certainty whether there is any truth in the stories or why Jane played a role. Certainly she fell with the Queen, um, and was beheaded alongside her. It's very tough, though, because this is a woman who was so well-versed in the Tudor court and how it operated. She would have known what would have happened if this secret was discovered, which does make her actions seem very, very strange. But equally, I think because she had served five queens, she knew her position. And I think, again, it's only my take on it, But if she did help facilitate Catherine's nocturnal affairs, let's call them that, I think it's because she was told to do so. You know, Catherine was queen, Jane was her servant. What what was she going to do? Was she going to go to the king and say, by the way, your young wife is having it away overnight? I just, I can't see that happening. (laughs) I can't see that happening. You know, there isn't any evidence really to support the theory that some have said that Jane was living vicariously through Catherine or that she actively encouraged it. Um, And until more information comes to light, I'll stick with my theory, which is, you know, Occam's theory, that the simplest um, solution is generally the the best one, which is that she was told to do it, so she did. On November 11th, 1541, Catherine was removed from Hampton Court and lodged in Sion Abbey. Two days later, Jane and Culpepper were taken to the Tower of London for questioning. Culpepper admitted to being in the Queen's private company, but denied ever consummating their relationship. He claimed that he and Catherine were innocent of any real wrongdoing, and the real culprit was Jane Boleyn. Not only had Jane acted as messenger between the two, she also provoked him much to love the Queen, as he claimed. Catherine herself also claimed that the whole thing had been Jane's idea, Jane had encouraged Catherine to speak to Culpepper, and when she had hesitated, Jane had insisted. Due to the fact that she was a Viscountess, Jane would not be subject to physical torture. 
but she was put through intense questioning. During the third day of her incarceration, Jane's nerves were spent and she went mad, according to those working in the tower at the time. Later adaptations of her life have called into question the sincerity of Jane's emotional breakdown. This assertion is usually backed up with the fact that someone who is legally insane could not be executed in Tudor England. Therefore, some have claimed that Jane simply faked her madness to get out of a death sentence. However, it isn't hard to imagine the trauma Jane was going through during her time in the Tower. This was her second time being intimately involved in a treason case. But with Catherine, Jane was at the very epicenter. Jane had witnessed Henry's ruthlessness with his first two wives, and she was now in the direct line of fire. Personally, I don't know many people who could have kept calm in that situation. After Jane's breakdown, Henry did all he could to secure her swift recovery so that he could put her to death. However, in January 1542, Jane showed no mental improvement. Henry was determined that Jane should pay the ultimate price for her help in humiliating him. And so Henry changed the law to state that an insane person could be executed for treason. With this law, Henry sealed Jane's fate. Unlike the well-known depiction of Catherine in Jane's execution in the Tudors, Jane did not die first, and she did not witness Catherine's death. Once Catherine was beheaded, Jane was brought out to the block still dripping in the young girl's blood. There was no word-for-word -word transcript of what Jane said before her death. After giving what can be assumed to be a traditional scaffold speech, Jane laid her head upon the block as George Boleyn, Anne Boleyn, and Catherine Howard had done before her. The woman who had become known as that bawd Lady Rochford had died, but her legend was just beginning. The narrative of Jane as the wicked, scorned, and jealous wife who was bent on revenge began soon after her death and has become the common portrayal of Jane in books, films, and television. Adam believes that fiction has played a massive role in our popular perception of who Jane was. In particular, he believes fiction has helped solidify the myth that Jane was responsible for the death of her husband George and her sister-in-law Anne Boleyn. Uh, without doubt that she was conspired to bring about the death of her husband, George Boleyn, and her sister-in-law, Queen Anne. Unfortunately, TV and film, as we've said, they've not been remotely kind to Jane on this topic and have repeatedly presented her inaccurately. You know, we've I've mentioned the Six Wives drama, then there's the Tudors, Wolf Hall, and most recently that three-part drama called Anne Boleyn. I've all taken a really late, I call a really lazy route with Jane, which is that she brought about their downfall. Realistically speaking, I've not seen a portrayal of her in in drama that's been in anywhere in any way uh, feels authentic. And again, I think I, you know, I take to task the producers and, and, and sort of screenwriters of adaptations. Of, of drama series for just taking the lazy route. Claire also believes that fiction played a huge role in the creation of Jane's legacy, but she also points to older historical narratives that played into the concept of evil Lady Rochford. Fiction 
is incredibly powerful. And then you you've got the films, uh, you know, like. Um, well, you've got the works of Philip Gregory, you've got um, the Tudors. We obviously saw, you know, a very uh, jealous, shrewish uh, Jane on that who likes to peek through keyholes and likes to make up stories and be spiteful. And, and that is very, very powerful. And that is hard to overcome. Even if you're kind of quoting historical sources at people, you're still fighting a picture that they've built up in their minds. And, you know, you've even got if people do go to history books, I mean, Lacey Baldwin-Smith um, in his biography of Catherine Howard talks of Jane as a pathological meddler with the in- instincts of a procuress who achieves a vic- vicarious pleasure from arranging assignations. So that's just like the Jane of the Tudors. You have C. Coote who says, who calls her the infamous Lady Rochford who justly deserved her fate. You know, it's just historians say this as well so you're not just overcoming fiction you are overcoming some of the kind of the older history books um so yeah sometimes i feel like i'm fighting a a losing kind of cause on um on social media just because of the power of, of fiction in these older history books as i talked about in the Catherine howard episode in recent years there has been a massive movement to reinterpret the legacy of Anne Boleyn. However, in the movement to rehabilitate one historical woman, one of the others, Jane, has become the ultimate antagonist, the scapegoat for the unfair downfall of an innocent queen. As Adam states, Anne Boleyn's story has been told through a lens of rehabilitation, and part of that rehabilitation has been to the detriment of Jane, who is repeatedly used as a pantomime villain in bringing down Anne. Again, I think it's just lazy. Um, You know, why can't Anne's very much deserved rehabilitation of her reputation not be at the expense of a woman who in all probability did Anne no harm? Um, You only have to look at the two most recent portrayals of Jane Boleyn by Jessica Rain in Wolf Hall and Anna Brewster in Anne Boleyn, the three-part drama. They are just so awful. Not the acting. The acting's wonderful. It's just about the characterization. It just the, the characterization just continues to feed the notion that she was just this ultimate scheming, um, vindictive cow who who sought out to bring down her her sister in law and and husband. And I think until those who are making those adaptations, because ultimately. It is within the it's within the grasp of historians and TV producers to to show characters in, in an authentic light. They are the ones that can really hold the the ability to change that perception. And until we start going, well, why are we telling this narrative? It doesn't make sense. There isn't proof. She won't be her perception won't be changed. And because there because she isn't Tudor A list, there isn't that sort of critical massive interest in the way that there is, for example, with Anne Boleyn. Claire shares Adam's belief that the rehabilitation of Anne Boleyn and somewhat rehabilitation of Catherine Howard has helped solidify the negative legacy of Jane Boleyn. I think it's sad that in a way in trying to rehabilitate Anne Boleyn, in trying to rehabilitate Catherine Howard, in trying to rehabilitate George Boleyn, that, you know, that people have looked for another baddie. 
someone to blame and Jane has become that scapegoat. Um, and I don't, I don't think there's any valid reason to, to lay blame at her door at all. And I just think it's very sad that, you know, the, the works of Julia and, and Charlie and also Adrian Dillard's um, wonderful novel as well, The Raven's Widow, that these, these still haven't, people, people still haven't read them. There are still people, you know, that think Jane as a baddie. And I think that is human nature. We like to sort historical characters like fictional characters into goodies and baddies. And I think we stereotype them and, and give them quite two-dimensional characterizations. So no, I don't, I don't believe that um, she was this mythical, infamous Lady Watchford, the, yeah, the baddie, the evil woman. For me, it comes more from looking for a scapegoat, from the, from the whole kind of idea of trying to rehabilitate one historical character and so therefore seeking to blame another. You see that so often. But yeah, I mean, you don't ever try and characterise a male historical character as being sort of jealous and shrewish and spying at keyholes and that that just... that is not male they're not male characteristics in fiction or tv are they you don't see a man being being used in that way in the end jane boleyn often proves to be a complicated confusing and frustrating historical character whose actions are shrouded in mystery we can never really know the reasons behind jane's actions but we can look at her in a more nuanced and fair light trying to better understand her as a person, and therefore better understand why she did what she did. Here's Adam. I would love her legacy to actually be of a woman who saw it all. As I mentioned you know, earlier on, this was someone who had access to all of the best bits, really, of, if, if we're looking back, um, of Henry VIII's reign. She saw five of his queens... Um, rise and fall she was there um, and I think it's just um, I think that's really really um, unknown that, that, that there was this woman who was at the centre of so much um, and I think that actually what her legacy should be is, is, is that that this was someone who saw and was part, party to all of the big drama of Henry VIII's reign um, rather than being this, you know, manipulative, evil woman who brought down um, her husband and sister-in-law. The wicked legacy of Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford, did not happen overnight, but has come out of years of negative and caricatured portrayals. The stereotype of a scorned and vengeful wife is placed on Jane in almost every fictional and many non-fictional portrayals. Jane was damned in life and history the moment Henry VIII signed her death warrant, and her posthumous reputation has remained sullied ever since. When Jane walked down the aisle to marry George Boleyn, she never could have imagined the path her life would take. Jane took to the grave the truth of her association with the downfall of the Boleyns and Catherine Howard. Whatever her role, whether direct or indirect, 
she paid the ultimate price. Henry VIII ensured she lost her life, but history has ensured she also lost her story. Mm -hmm.